Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag Your Mind Good evening, everyone. I'm Rick Walker. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Great to have everybody here. Welcome, new viewers and Maverick family. The world is watching. And we have many stories to share with you. So much going on in the world tonight. Um, We have something very big happening on what is becoming, what has become, really a two-front war in Ukraine and in the Middle East. And uh, we're seeing some new developments on the Ukraine front that we'll tell you about tonight. Information that uh, you really will not get anywhere else. We'll bring you up to date on what is happening with white lung syndrome. This condition that is being reported in the United States now, and it is not really clear if it's related to these hospitalizations involving children in China. Children reported with some sort of pneumonia. You can speculate, I can speculate, we can all speculate, we'll speculate together during the program when we bring you up to date on that. Uh, we'll talk, talk about a loyalty pledge that uh, visitors to Russia are going to be asked to sign as we enter into this new multipolar geopolitical reality under the cloud of a third world war, fifth generation warfare style. We will talk about Henry Kissinger. We did touch on the passing of the former statesman and controversial international figure last night. Going to talk a little bit more about him this evening and discuss the seeds of war that Henry Kissinger, not alone, but with other world figures planted during the 1960s and 1970s, seeds that are growing today. And it ties into even what was going on, you know, with John F. Kennedy. It goes way back, of course. And uh, what prompted me to decide to talk about this tonight is because I've seen some younger people posting about this online. Um, and some of them, you know, maybe 10, 20 years younger than me, saying, <laughs> maybe 30 years younger than me, saying that uh, they weren't alive during that time when Kissinger was alive. So it's hard to understand what's going on. And these are major influencers. I was alive. <laughs> I was there. I was young, but I remember. So I'll add a little perspective tonight on the Henry Kissinger story from my own worldview. 
and maybe it will help everyone understand where we're at today in the world of politics. We have also a story about car dealers, which I tried to get to last night, didn't quite make it there, about car dealers in the United States asking the president of the United States to tap the brakes on electric vehicles. Um, oh, yes, Canada and many other Western countries committing huge money, over 200 million, 260 million, I think, to a new climate change damage fund. We'll tell you about that. And fake, 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 fake news involving the actor Danny Trejo. He's been in a lot of different, um, some A-list movies, some B-movies, horror flicks, action flicks, you know. If you don't know who he is, let me show you who he is, quickly. This is a guy right here, Danny Trejo. He does the comic convention circuit a lot. Anyway, there's a story on the internet, and it is totally fake. And we're going to talk about that tonight, along with some other fake news that is out there making the, the rounds. So we got all that and a whole lot more coming right up. So do not go away. Do not touch that dial. We will be right back after this. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone. Have a merry maverick Christmas. And a magnificent new year. Okay, so where shall I begin? Let's start with information coming out of um, 
Crimea. We're receiving reports tonight that uh, there are troop movements happening down there. Aircraft, lots of aircraft in the area of Crimea. Russian aircraft. Let's bring up a map here so you can see what I'm talking about. So here you go. So we're getting reports tonight of lots of troop movements in the Crimea area. Lots of aircraft, airborne, um, military vehicles. What does it all mean? Well, I think it, it I, I would not want to speculate too much on what it all means. But obviously, this it's telling us that this conflict in Ukraine is far, far from over. And the Russians are well entrenched. I said last night that I think what we basically have here is a stalemate. And that, I think, has been sort of the... the the conventional wisdom that has emerged over the past, at least the last maybe three, four weeks. But with all of this activity down here right now, I think maybe we're seeing um, something substantial happening. And we've you, you, you combine that with other reports that we're seeing, um, including in, in the media, you know, not just uh, eyewitness accounts, but media reports as well of Internet blockages taking place in this area. Uh, we've received reports that there have been extensive Internet blockages over the past few days in particular, which is being done, according to some analysts that we've been reading about, um, to prevent information on specific movements from getting out of the area. Now, why would all this be happening? I think it's honestly because you really do have a two-front war now happening in this new multipolar geopolitical reality. I think that uh, um, to look at these two wars, one in the Middle East, one in Ukraine as being two isolated conflicts is an error. They are absolutely related and they are playing off against each other. This is a key moment, I think. And this is just me as a layman, as a journalist, providing my, my, opinion and analysis based on what information I've been given and what I've been observing and what I've been reading and extrapolating from other people who have been offering their analyses as well. I think that this is significant because the United States, NATO, has been sort of pivoting away from Ukraine. We've seen that support, public support for the war has been 
eroded in North America, in the West, among NATO countries, and especially in the United States and Canada. There isn't as much of an appetite to continue funding this war. The information warfare campaign has decidedly come down in favor of, I would say, the Russians in terms of its impact here in, in North America. Public opinion is has shifted, I think, fairly substantially away from the politicians in charge and more toward, honestly, the, uh, the Russian side. That's why I think you're seeing this development here right now. You have all of this going on in the Middle East. This conflict has erupted between Israel and Hamas. The, the attention has shifted. The focus has shifted there. And in order to keep maximum pressure on NATO, to turn the tables on NATO forces on the United States, I think you're going to see a new offensive here in order to try to get the West to get NATO to re-engage in a more substantial way to prevent them from disengaging and let this sit and simmer as a stalemate as we see now some indication that they were maybe going to go back into maybe negotiations or peace talks. And maybe that's what it's all about as well, is maybe to, to accelerate that process. Don't know, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that Russia, Putin, will not want to let this situation simmer. He's going to want to put more pressure on the West to spread the resources thin. Knowing full well that the United States is already spread too thin around the world with all of its military bases and now committing ships to support Israel. So tonight we're seeing developments in Crimea suggesting that Russian forces are being repositioned and fortified in certain areas. And I can't give you any other details than that. Don't know any particulars or any specifics on any plans. It's just that we've seen multiple reports coming in from eyewitnesses in that area especially in the South, where it seems the troops are being deployed, resources coming in. And of course, this is a strategic location in the Black Sea, so they can use this as a, a port of entry to come up into Ukraine from this, this area. And that's why it is significant. And as I say, media reports, other media reports, uh, have been uh, percolating about internet blackouts really over the past month, but especially within the last few days, which is another indication that there is something cooking down here in this part 
of Crimea. So keep your eyes peeled, keep your ears to the ground, and keep checking back here because we'll keep you posted with whatever information does come to light in the days ahead on that front. Now, over in the Middle East, we're seeing ongoing developments there, of course. The uh, ceasefire has ended. We know that um, both sides are shooting at each other again. Israel, as a result, has renewed its assault on the Gaza Strip, going after Hamas. It ends a week-long truce. Israel says that it was Hamas that broke the peace by firing at uh, IDF soldiers and, um, and actually into Israel. International mediators say they were still, they say they are still trying to restore the ceasefire, during which time we saw the release of more than 100 hostages in Gaza and 240 Palestinian prisoners um, being freed. And there were hopes that uh, it might, re you know, that that pause, that ceasefire might lead to a more permanent deal, maybe a more permanent ceasefire, but obviously that is not the case. And the fighting has resumed. And we can see also from this image here, this is a new image, that rockets were fired from Gaza at Israel today. That is a current photo and verified as real. So you can see that the conflict has resumed the fighting. Now, as all of that is going on, the information war is also ramping up in a pretty substantial way and in a pretty fake way too. Um, I'm seeing all kinds of weird stuff online, which is why I really, I don't take, I don't take anything at face value anymore, man. I really don't. And even when I'm seeing fake stuff, I'm kind of wondering if it's like, is it just fake or was somebody faking it to make it look like somebody was trying to fake something? I don't know. <laughs> Are they faking this to make the other side look bad like they're trying to make something look fake? I don't even want to laugh about it because it is so... It's just, it's it's kind of sick really, and very Orwellian. So here's a post, and I'm not telling you if it's true or not true or what to make. I don't, you, you can assess it for yourself. I don't even, oh man, I don't even, <laughs> I hate to even show stuff like this because what can I say? It's obviously fake. 
you can tell from the photo, okay? So this is a picture of a woman with a baby, but it's not a baby, it's a doll. And it is clearly a doll. Now, you can decide which side is doing this. But it's obviously a doll. And why is that photo, what's the purpose behind it, is you can decide for yourself. I don't know. But that's the kind of stuff that's out there. So you could say that that is side A, trying to fake something to generate sympathy and support as being the oppressed. Or you might say that that's side B, making it look like it's side A, doing something and then exposing it as fake to make side A look bad. And that's how whacked everything is out there. Even if something is decidedly fake, you don't know if it's really just fake or if it's a double fake to double fake you out. I don't know. I don't know. There's another story circulating. A big one. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's getting a lot of traction. And I've confirmed this is absolutely fake. And it involves the actor Danny Trejo. Who is Danny Trejo? Well, I've got the photo of him. You'll recognize him. He's been in a lot of different movies. I showed you this uh, just uh, coming in as the uh, preview of stories to come. Here he is. It's this gentleman right here. So the deal with this is Danny Trejo um, was supposedly invited to Ukraine to meet with Vladimir Zelensky. I had this queued up. Where did it go? Okay, so he was supposed to, it said that he went to yeah, right here. He was invited to Ukraine, but he ultimately turned the deal down. It involved some $150,000 as the offer. And he turned it down, it said, because he was supposed to give a kickback to Ukrainian officials. And so this guy here, David Roth Lindbergh, is one of the people who has been reposting this thing, says uh, Hollywood stars got paid to shake Zelensky's hand, which is true. Actor Danny Trejo was offered $100,000 to visit Kiev or Kiev and shake the hand of Ukrainians, Ukraine's president. However, there was one catch. He'd receive $150,000, of which he'd give Andre Yermak, the head of Zelensky's office, $50,000 in cash. So it's about this video, and I'll run this video. This is the, uh, the, the, 
the video has been, as I say, getting a lot of traction online. This, but it's completely fake, and I'll show you why on the other side of this. They said it was on TMZ. They said this was reported on TMZ. And, you know, trying to show that there's corruption involving these actors. Like Sean Penn went over there. They agreed to Danny's terms. It's 100000 in represent representation expenses, it says. But the people in the president's office asked for 150000 to be spelled out in the contract. And fifty grand was supposed to go back in cash. But blah, 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 blah. It's only natural that Danny refused. If it were even $1, he would never agree such a thing. According to Ryan Davis, his agent, the Ukrainian... And so they're saying that as a result of these celebrity visits, Ukrainian officials have skimmed off an assumed $700,000, and that's the video service that put this thing out. But there are some problems with the story. First of all, Ryan Davis is not Danny Trejo's agent um, Danny Trejo's agent is a woman and that has been confirmed and I can show you here we go. Here's his website. This is Danny Trejo's website. So this is a pretty poor effort at fake news. Here's Danny Trejo's page. I checked it out. His agent is Gloria Hinojsa. There's even a phone number for her right here. And they have issued a statement saying that this story is entirely false. So we know that uh, Danny Trejo says it's a false story. People are just making this up. Never received an offer to go to Ukraine. And it came, the original post appears to have come from this source on Telegram. And I did translate the information on this Telegram site. And it does spell this story out exactly as I laid it out for you. But it's all fake. And so the um, we do have a statement from Danny Trejo's representatives. And as I say, the, he has indicated that he was never invited to Ukraine by Zelensky. He was never offered a fee for a trip. 
and Zelensky's office, therefore, never asked for a kickback. He just says it never happened. And Ryan Davis, not Trejo's agent. It's a fake video. And it is being spread, shared, even tonight, still being shared online. But it's not true. And the, uh, the posts are suggesting that it's a story that has appeared not only on TMZ, but also MSNBC. But the problem is no such story exists on MSNBC or on TMZ. So neither media outlet did that story. It's 100% totally fake. One hundred percent. So if you're seeing that online, now you know. Confirmed. One hundred percent propaganda. Now, did John Penn go there? Yeah. Did some other celebrities go there? Yeah. And those kinds of activities have all the earmarks of Western, NATO, U.S., propaganda. That's the kind of stuff they do. If you think back to the pandemic and the height of the pandemic and the beginning of the pandemic, how many celebrities did they roll out online to keep us entertained while we were all locked down? We had them literally serenading us. I know in Canada, they paid musicians to perform online to keep us all calm. <laughs> that's the only way I can just, that's what it appeared to me to be anyway. Better better entertain them all since they're all locked at home. So they had everybody from Burton Cummings to, I don't remember who all else was on there, but I remember on the U.S. side, you had Arnold Schwarzenegger doing online videos. You had Brad Pitt. The list went on and on and on. You know, spreading the government narrative, that's what they do. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, they literally were doing online sort of concerts from their home studios. Was that propaganda? Yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. Sure was. So keep your eyes on that. All right, let's take a little break. I'll come back. We have lots more to talk about tonight. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating Millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching.
Yesterday we showed you a clip with Elon Musk telling advertisers who have indicated they're going to be boycotting Twitter or X because of some of the posts he's made commenting on really the war between Israel and Hamas, which are being interpreted as anti-Semitic. He told them all to go F themselves. He literally said that more than once. And so tonight he's posting this. So I just thought I'd show you. He says, here I am, the richest man in the world, philosophite, climate crusader, and I still get, well, you can read the rest. S-H-I-T from idiots. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? It's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter how woke you get. In fact, it seems like the more woke you get, the more likely you are to be consumed by the people on the left. The more you try to appease the people on the left, the more likely they are to eventually come and eat you alive. I swear. Even in Canada with the Bank of Nova Scotia, you're seeing the Bank of Nova Scotia actively targeted by pro-Palestinian protesters who, let's face it, these are people on the left. Even though Scotiabank, like every other financial institution in this country, has pivoted to be politically correct. And they've gone out of their way and they continue to go out of their way to be woke, woke, woke. And do all of the, the, the right things and do all the right virtue signaling through all of their marketing and all of their training and all of their corporate policies and all of their hiring policies. And they are in alignment with everything that they need to be in alignment with in terms of public relations, but then heavily criticized and protested. And even bank branches have been shut down by protesters on the left because they're being accused of financing or providing loans or financing to, to, to further the conflict in the Middle East but because it's helping Israel. They... Like in, I, I, whatever. It's just, I just laugh because it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a company and you're going to go woke to appease the left, don't be surprised if it doesn't help you in the long run. It's, it, they're going to come for you anyway, because you're still a corporation and they hate corporations and make no mistake. The people out protesting in the streets, largely, not all of them. But there's a huge number of them who are it's the same people who are out there marching for BLM or climate change activism or you name the issue on the left. And they're always out there. Same people. It's the Antifa group. It's, it's all of them. 
it's the uh, you know let's protest against the freedom convoy. Let's get out there and do that. Let's it's the same. It's the same people. It is. It's the same people. Now you've got the core people from each of the individual um, issues. You know, when a, a new issue kind of rises to the surface and it becomes the new thing, then you've got let's call them the stakeholders, right? The people who are affected directly by the issue. And then you get all the people in the left around it because they latch onto these issues and make them their own and they use it to disrupt. Occupy Wall Street, same people, same people. And they make these issues left issues. Same people. It is. Here's an interesting development in uh, still the ongoing Third World War, which we are now embroiled in. And uh, this is being reported by a number of media outlets, including, in this case, The Guardian. And they're saying that Russia is going to start to ask foreign visitors to sign a loyalty pledge. So this is what's being reported. It says here, the Russian Interior Ministry has proposed introducing a loyalty pledge that foreigners would have to sign on entering the country as the government considers even more stringent controls on public dissent amid its war in Ukraine. The new rules would include prohibitions on criticism of the Russian state and top officials, including Vladimir Putin, Kremlin foreign policy, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, discussion of LGBTQ plus issues and support for the same for same sex marriage and distortion of the historical truth about the feat of the Soviet people in the defense of the fatherland and its contribution to the victory over fascism. All of those issues have become cornerstones of conservative social policy under Putin, who has become a self-styled champion of traditional values and historical truth while driving Russia into international isolation, it says here, through a series of conflicts with the West. I'm not so sure he's that isolated. I think he has some pretty powerful allies within that axis of power, North Korea, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, Iran, the list goes on. Earlier this week, Putin called on Russian families to strive to have as many as seven or eight children, saying Russia was facing a vast demographic crisis that could play to the advantage of its enemies. Anyway, um, it's not clear when the law, which the minister calls a loyalty pledge, will be submitted to the Russian Duma. Similar laws have been considered since 2021, but this is the first time it says here that draft legislation has been seen by Russian media. The draft law, it goes on, it says, which was first reported by the state news agency, news agency TASS, would require foreigners arriving in Russia to sign a document forbidding hindrance of activities of state authorities of the Russian Federation, discrediting in any form the foreign and domestic state policy of the Russian Federation, 
public authorities, and their officials. Only those foreigners who signed the document would be allowed into the country, the news agency said. You get the picture. And yes, it is true. I mean, make no mistake, over in Russia, they have much more strict rules right now on speech than we do here in the West. And I know that everyone here is concerned about censorship, as am I. But I know for a fact that over there, they do have a much tighter grip on censorship than we do over here. That's the truth. At times, it seems like maybe they have more freedom of speech, but they really do not. They're controlling the narrative over there much more effectively. And the result, honestly, is more stability in Russia. They're controlling the flow of anti-government information. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Some of it still gets through. So that's interesting, I think. Um, now, let's just dip over here and talk about climate change. There's um, COP28, Climate Change Summit, kicked off. Um, with Canada committing, I believe it's $16 million to a climate damage fund. Yeah, $16 million. And other countries are coughing up. Oh, boy. I don't know what the total is up to exactly now, but it's well over 100 million. I saw one report today suggesting it may be, as, it may be over 200 million in total. Let me just check that total for you. Oh, it's actually more. It's now up to some reports now saying as much as $400 million from countries around the world to establish a loss and damage fund for victims of climate disaster. It's being described as an historic moment. And today, Canada's Minister of Climate Change and Environment, Stephen Guibault, had this to say about it. Let's bring up Stephen Gibo and he'll fill you in. Here we go. To be joined by a large group of provincial, territorial, and Indigenous representatives who are all part of the Canadian delegation, as well as a wide representation from civil society, trade unions, youth, and businesses. While here, I will also be fulfilling a special role at the request of the COP presidency as co-facilitators for the means of implementation of COP28. I am joined by my co-facilitator, Minister Fouad from Egypt. 
We played a similar role last year when we landed an historic agreement on the protection of nature in Montreal at COP15. Earlier in November, the OECD announced that contributing countries likely met the $100 billion goal last year. This is a good sign, and yet we need to do more. It shows that by working together, we can achieve great things. So we will use COP28 to push further on climate finance. I am glad to see the global community has already come together with the announcement of a new fund to address loss and damages due to climate change experienced by developing countries who are the least responsible for fueling the climate crisis. This is something Canada fought hard to establish last year at COP27. So I'm happy to announce that, is, that Canada is providing $16 million in seed money to the startup costs of this fund for loss and damage. And I want to congratulate the COP28 presidency for their leadership in securing the adoption of the fund on the first day of COP28 and for making a contribution right away. It is good to see others step up with early contributions, and we hope many, many others will join. Will join. Je d'annoncer que le Canada... Redistribution of wealth. That's what it is, in my view. It's like uh, just the money that is keep spending the money 16 million here yeah here's 16 million another 16 what's another 16 million dollars no big deal right we can afford it come on what's the big deal it's, i think it's a big deal i think it's a really big deal a lot of people having a hard time making ends meet out there. Imagine what they could do with $16 million. To help people who this Christmas can't afford food. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become, become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media In an ocean of lies a century deep, the truth awaits. Choose not the red pill. Choose not the blue pill. For both are an illusion. Discover the power of M. The power of individuality. We are mavericks. We are the way to the light. Fear not the storm. Join our quest for truth. Truth will set you free. Maverick News. The world is watching. So we gave you a little bit of a reality check there. Earlier with that story about uh, Danny Trejo. And the story with the 
doll in the woman's arms. And now I don't really know what to make of this story about white lung disease. Reports coming out of China over the last week or so, over a week now, I guess, that we've been talking about from time to time a little bit about children affected by this form of pneumonia, almost like a walking pneumonia, and then it becomes more serious in some cases, and the children don't really cough, but their lungs are severely affected, and it's resulted in a lot of hospitalizations there. And now over in Ohio, that's the first state in the United States to report cases that appear to be maybe similar, but not really confirmed as being directly linked in any way to what's going on in China. But it's unusual, to say the least. And we have a media report that I want to run for you so that um, I think for the sake of skeptics and our friends in the social media policing department, <laughs> show that I'm not just spitting into the wind here. This is being reported now through the mainstream media. They're acknowledging this. First reports in Ohio, and I'll tell you tonight, for the first time, we're also getting similar reports now out of Massachusetts. So this is raising real concerns with people. It's affecting children, only children at this point, from what we've seen, what we've been told by public health officials and just through statistics. And it's new, it's emerging. And it isn't really clear what we're dealing with here yet. I don't like to speculate on stuff like this, but there's enough information here that we should all be very concerned, I think, at this point. And here, let's let this roll. Global health officials are monitoring an outbreak of bacterial pneumonia in the U.S. that made its way from China and Europe. CBS 8's Abby Black is here to explain if we should be worried about another pandemic on the horizon. Abby? Marcella and Carlo, as the respiratory outbreak surges across the world, there's a global concern that there could be another pandemic. I spoke to an immunologist known for his work on the coronavirus. He gives us insight into what this outbreak means. An outbreak of a strain of bacterial pneumonia, now dubbed white lung syndrome, has infected children in China, Denmark, and the Netherlands, primarily between the ages of three and eight years old. Ohio is now the first state to report the disease in the U.S. with 142 cases. Today, the CDC director told the House committee these infections appear to be common bacteria and viruses that happen everywhere. As of today, we do not believe this is a new or novel pathogen. We believe this is all existing, meaning COVID, flu, RSV, mycoplasma. This time, China's handed over data that shows children have been sick with known pathogens, but the infections are still evolving. Could this be a COVID-type situation? I, of course, we're all concerned after the pandemic. We hear about an outbreak in China. We hear about outbreaks elsewhere. Right now, we don't think that's what but this of is. Of course, we're monitoring carefully. Bioengineer, immunologist, and founder of San Francisco-based Cinevax, Dr. Jacob Glanville, was featured in the Netflix series Pandemic. He says while he continues to monitor the pneumonia outbreak, he believes due to COVID-19 and masking, children have not been as exposed to infections to help build up their immunity. So if there's three years of no high alert, it's kind of like a 
a lazy castle where the Huns haven't come by in a while. And so the guards aren't really, you know, keeping their eye on the horizons. Just this morning, the California Department of Health contacted Rady Children's Hospital to get a status on what viruses are showing up. Rady's medical director of infectious diseases, while there's a sharp increase in patient visits, they've not treated patients with white lung syndrome this year. So far, what we're seeing is just a bad respiratory season. It's not overwhelming and there's no mystery pathogen that's causing disease. Like any illness, the best way to protect yourself and children is to wash your hands, keep vaccinations current, and seek medical attention if your child's breathing changes or if something just doesn't feel right. I don't think we're seeing um, cases of, of enhanced death around these children. They're just getting really sick. And the best way to protect yourself is to bring them in early and get good medical attention if you reach that point. I asked Dr. Glanville if traveling to states and countries dealing with this virus is safe. His advice, it's probably best to avoid them and do everything we can to limit the number of infections so we don't overwhelm the medical facilities here. And so we know that local hospitals are seeing a high number of respiratory illnesses right now, different viruses, including whooping cough at Rady Children's Hospital. Is this, is this going to be the new normal for us, seeing these high rates during the winter? Hopefully not. And I asked Dr. Glanville that question. He addressed this and said, quote, to be blunt, this winter there will be a high number of infections. But he adds, this is not the new normal and believes that this is just the hangover from the pandemic. Glanville says that once we get used to all of this traditional infections that we usually get this time of year, we hopefully will bounce back to normal. All right. And a lot of people are going to be gathering. Uh... the new normal. Well, they didn't talk about this spreading out of Massachusetts. I think what you're going to see is more. Of course you're going to see more. It's some sort of an infection. It's spreading, obviously. So I think it goes without saying that you're going to see more. And uh, as a result, as a result, what are you going to, what are you getting? We're getting, we're getting this. We're getting officials saying, you got to, you got to get vaccinated. Here it is. Here it is. Let me bring it up. I'll bring it up. You got to get vaccinated. You ready? This is Massachusetts. Holiday warning from officials, Lauren. Hey, guys, we are just 15 days away from Thanksgiving, and officials are warning families without boosters. They are at risk, and not just for coronavirus, but also the flu or really any combination of either of those. So, uh, DPH is saying severe illness, hospitalization, and death. They are very much a reality across the state. So far this season, health officials have already tracked children five and younger having almost 3,800 cases of COVID, five to 19, more than that. Oh, uh, we also know that it almost doubles for people ages 20 to 34. But then as we look at our older neighbors, who are often immunocompromised. The reported COVID cases in that situation, 65 to 79, also highest there, topping 9,000. So state health leaders are confirming the updated COVID-19 vaccine is effective against current variants, and they want everyone, of course, to be able to get it. 
So through the Vaccine Equity Initiative, DPH is now working with communities of color and other groups hardest hit by viruses, holding both flu and COVID clinics at upcoming cultural events. So a lot of important information. And they're also reminding people, especially as this traveling and social gathering holiday season ramps up, that it takes up to two weeks for it to be effective and protect you against hospitalizations and infections, but also reduce the chances of suffering from the effects of long COVID. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that was from a few days ago, but that's the message. Go get the thingy. Go get your thingy. I was at, um, I was actually down at uh, the pharmacy yesterday and <laughs> and I was walking through, there's a post office in there. That's really why I was there. And so as I was leaving the post office, somebody recognized me and he had a mask on and I couldn't, I don't know who it was. I said, I don't recognize you because you have a mask on. And, and he said, yeah, hey, Rick, hey. And I was like, I don't know who you are. I can't recognize you with your mask on. He said, he said and I still don't know who it was. Um, because he had a mask on and he said, uh, he's just getting over COVID. <laughs> I thought, wow, if things ever changed, you know, nobody else in the place had a mask on, he had a mask on and I guess he was still on the tail end of it, but he was out and <laughs> hanging out in public. And I thought if this had been at the beginning of the whole pandemic, like people would have been freaking out. They would have been, I don't know, probably jumping on him and dragging him out. I don't know. You know, it's like, I guess maybe people are just finally calming down. And I said, oh, well, that sucks. Have a nice day. <laughs> anyway, and I don't, I'm, I don't think I got infecticized or anything. I'm not, I'm not sick. At least not yet. Never know. Maybe he infected me just by being in my 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 zone. I don't know if I was six feet away or not. If I was like, if I was like inside that six foot zone, man, I could be doomed. But I'm not that worried. So yeah, 142 cases of that white lung syndrome reported now in Cincinnati, Ohio area. Massachusetts, not sure of the numbers there, but we are seeing numbers or reports of it now out of Massachusetts tonight as well. And here's, uh, I don't know, let me just show you the pictures of the x-rays that have been shared. So says the above image pictures, the lungs during white lung syndrome or acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is diagnosed via the white spots or opaque areas appearing in the lungs. Well, this is a 57 year old man in 2014. What does this have to do with? This is so weird. No wonder the media is so screwed up. This is affecting children here. Then they're sharing this picture. Like, whatever. It's hardly even relevant. 
So you got you have something affecting children, and the mainstream media is out there sharing pic X-rays from a, of a of a man in his fifties. Whatever. Not helpful. Let's just let it play out a little longer, folks, and we'll see where it goes. Electric vehicles. I was going to touch on this story last night. Didn't have time. But I'll share it with you tonight. Auto dealers in the United States have sent an open letter to the president, Joe Biden, asking him to basically tap the brakes on electric vehicles. The headline here on this letter says, let our customers' voices be heard. So in just three weeks, 3,882 dealerships, reflecting the voice of our customers representing all major vehicle manufacturing brands, spanning 50 states, called on the President of the United States to tap the brakes on the proposed electric vehicle mandate. Below is the letter and the list of dealerships that signed. It says right here, let's read it. A letter to the President. Dear Mr. President, we are auto dealers from across the country who collectively sell every major brand in the U.S. We are small businesses employing thousands of Americans. We are deeply committed to the customers we serve and the communities where we operate, which is why we are asking you to slow down your proposed regulations mandating battery electric vehicles, production and distribution. Your administration has proposed regulations that would essentially mandate a dramatic shift to battery electric vehicles increasing year after year until 2032, when two out of every three vehicles sold in America would have to be battery electric. Currently, there are many excellent battery electric vehicles available for consumers to purchase. These vehicles are ideal for many people, and we believe their appeal will grow over time. The reality, however, is that electric vehicle demand today is not keeping up with the large influx of BEVs arriving at our dealerships prompted by the current regulations. BEVs are stacking up on our lots. Last year, there was a lot of hope and hype about EVs. Early adopters formed an initial line and were ready to buy these vehicles as soon as we had them to sell. But that enthusiasm has stalled. Today, the supply of unsold BEVs is surging as they are not selling nearly as fast as they are arriving at our dealerships, even with deep price cuts, manufacturer incentives, and generous government incentives. While the goals of the regulations are admirable, they require consumer acceptance to become a reality. With each passing day, it becomes more apparent this attempted electric vehicle mandate is unrealistic based on current and forecasted customer demand. Already, electric vehicles are stacking up on our lots, which is our best indicator of customer demand in the marketplace. Mr. President, no government agency, no think tank, and no polling firm knows more about the automobile customer than us. We talk to customers every day. As retail automotive dealerships, we are agnostic as to what we sell. Our business is to provide customers with vehicles that meet the needs of their budgets and lifestyles. Some customers are in the market for electric vehicles, and we have, are thrilled to sell them. But the majority of customers are simply not ready to make the change. 
They are concerned about BEVs being unaffordable. Many do not have garages for home charging or easy access to public charging stations. Customers are also concerned about the loss of driving range in cold or hot weather. Some have long daily commutes and don't have the extra time to charge the battery. Truck buyers are especially put off by the dramatic loss of range when towing. Today's current technology is not adequate to support the needs of the majority of our consumers. Many of these challenges can and will be addressed by our manufacturers, but many of these challenges are outside of their control. Reliable charging networks, electric grid stability, sourcing of materials, and many other issues need time to resolve. And finally, many people just want to make their own choice about what vehicle is right for them. Mr. President, it is time to tap the brakes on the unrealistic government electric vehicle mandate. Allow time for the battery technology to advance. Allow time to make BEVs more affordable. Allow time to develop domestic sources for the minerals to make batteries. Allow time for the charging infrastructure to be built and prove reliable. And most of all, allow time for the American consumer to get comfortable with the technology and make the choice to buy an electric vehicle. Sincerely supporting dealerships. And there is a map showing where these dealerships are located. Supporting dealerships. Right there. All over the country. Yep. Including in Alaska, where it gets pretty darn cold. More to come right after this. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com that's freedomreporters.com maverick news the antivirus program for your mind the storm for truth is on our side 
Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, I'm back. So, Henry Kissinger, 100 years old, passed away. We touched on it a little bit yesterday. And I've seen a lot of posts, right, about this. And I thought we'd just talk about it a little bit again tonight. And it isn't really just so much about Kissinger. It's about, oh, my God. Another video here of someone holding a fake, like it's a, it's a doll. <laughs> I'm not even going to show it to you. This is Rebel News. This is a, this is a new development. Give them credit for this. They have video of what appear to be anti-Israel anti-Israel activists trying to block the CN train trail in Montreal. Show you this. Alexa Lavoie. Bring it over here. They're trying to escape, I guess. They got arrested. Interesting. Pushing the camera operator back. Another protester arrested over there. Block the train tracks. All right. What's that going to do? I just, whatever. I don't, what's that going to do? I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, anyway, back to uh, to Kissinger. Okay. Where did I want to go with this tonight? A lot of what we see going on today 
had its roots. The seeds are planted decades and decades and decades ago. You're seeing tonight, what are we talking about? Information warfare. We're seeing disruption within our society. We're seeing a third world war being fought using fifth generation warfare tactics. It's not a conventional kind of war, but we're definitely in the midst of it. And now kinetically on two fronts in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Henry Kissinger, controversial figure. Um, last night we showed you posts on Twitter. Oh, I'll show you again tonight. Um, you know, all you have to do is just punch in Kissinger and you'll get a fl steady flow of left-wing based, I would say, anti-Kissinger posts, memes, videos, mo many of them describing him as a war criminal. Here's a video of a meeting with Mao, I guess, from years ago. And as I said, even last night, and it was in New York City, protest, pro-Palestinian protesters there cheering when it was announced that he had passed away at the age of 100. And you can see here, here's a, a video kind of, this wasn't, This not actually Kissinger's funeral, obviously, but uh, this is the Arizona Libertarian Party, I guess, celebrating, laughing about his death. Here's the Daily Show posting. Is Henry Kissinger the greatest of all time of war criminals? And uh, now this, another very left-wing media outlet online says he's responsible for the deaths of an estimated three to four million people. Mm -hmm. Talking about the bombing of Cambodia. You know, it just goes on and on. But, you know, I grew up during those years. And uh, as a kid, I paid a lot more attention to the news than most kids. I was more interested in politics and economics than most kids. Here's another post saying that uh, Kissinger was also known as Agent Orange, was a tyrant and a warmonger. This guy here, Cameron Chida, don't know him. 
Here are the war crimes of Henry Kissinger, who was a racist bigot full of disgusting discrimination, it says, particularly towards people of color and Asians. Mm. You know, these figures from history, they're complex. They're humans. First, Henry Kissinger. Next, Benjamin Netanyahu, he says here. Marxist777 is the handle this guy goes by. Hell is waiting for these monsters, it says. But I think a lot of the people laughing and a lot of the people posting maybe don't really remember or maybe weren't there. And a lot of these things, I don't look at politics in terms of black and white. It's uh, it's comp more complex than that. You know, they say he bombed Cambodia. Well, yeah, he did. Would I have done that? Not likely, not my style. Okay. But I, it's just not that simple. And uh, back in the 60s and 70s, the public was largely divided on a lot of these issues surrounding the wars in Vietnam, which turned out to be an, you know, overall, I would say a disaster for the United States. But there was Korea the Korean War, then later Vietnam. So I thought we would maybe review a little bit of the history to get a little bit of perspective on this because as much as Henry Kissinger made huge mistakes and you can argue that he was responsible for the deaths of a lot of people, the other side is not blameless either. Because if there's one thing I've learned in politics, and especially with far-left communists, is they tend to censor, lie, <laughs> hide information, deceive. They absolutely do. I know it was one of, it was one of the first lessons I learned as a journalist, um, just out of journalism school, I was sent to a May Day event. And the first thing, it was one of the first stories I did for television. I went to a May Day event. Okay. That's like a heavy duty socialist thing. And uh, there was a guy there handing out pamphlets. So I walk up to him and we just start to do an interview and I look at his pamphlet and I'm reading it and it's inviting young people to go to a meeting. And I'm reading this thing and it's like, well, what's this all about? And as I'm flipping through it, I'm beginning to get the picture that this guy's a communist, but it doesn't say anything on this about him being with the communist party. And so 
as the camera's rolling and we're just doing an interview with him as one of the people in the crowd, I'm like, uh, are, are you a communist? And, uh, and then he gets upset with me. And I said, oh, you, you are a communist, right? Why don't you just tell them that you're a communist? And when they come to the meeting, you're going to talk about communism. And then he gets right up in my face <laughs> in the interview and starts, you know, getting pushy. So I didn't know he was a communist when I walked up to him. I, I'm just, he's like, I'm just, we're just doing people on the street interviews at this May Day event. Anyway, he didn't, he didn't like me too much just because I asked him and he acknowledged that finally he is a communist, but he didn't want people to know. So why don't you want the young people to know that you're a communist? Because communism doesn't sell, right? You can't tell somebody you're a communist up front because they'll go, well, I don't want to go hang out with you because you're a communist. So you don't tell them. That's why deception. You get them in the meeting and you kind of get them warmed up to some of these ideas and then you give them the pitch <laughs> over time. You, you know, you, that's the way they're do, they do it. You know, it's just not straight up. Because the communists, they, got to, they got, don't have the greatest track record on things like, you know, human rights. A lot of dead dead bodies <laughs> over time associated with communism, like millions of deaths. Um, and, you know, on this very news channel, so many people have come on to talk about John F. Kennedy, right? Let's go back before Kissinger and the Nixon era. Let's go back to how about John F. Kennedy talking about communism, okay? You know, Kennedy, perceived by many to be kind of on the left, not really, not by today's standards. If he, if, if John F. Kennedy <laughs> were to run for office today, he'd probably be a Republican, maybe a populist, but probably more in line with the Republicans. Um, here's an address, a speech from 1952 that I found today, JFK on the containment of communism. And what does John F. Kennedy have to say about it? He says, in August 1952, bring it up on the screen for you here. This is a, this is a, a transcript, and here's an excerpt from it. But in our efforts to contain the tide of communist expansion, it would be a mistake to judge the communist threat as primarily military. Although it is Russian military prestige that force and gives persuasion to its political and economic doctrines, certainly we must devote all our available energies to the task of rebuilding our military strength and we should use every means at our disposal to persuade our friends in the West to do likewise. He says here in this manuscript, 
Kennedy referred to the communist threat as an enemy, powerful, unrelenting, and implacable, who seeks to dominate the world by subversion and conspiracy. Isn't that interesting? It is to me, especially when I think about what we've been presenting here on this program in recent weeks with the likes of clips from Yuri Bezmenov, the former KGB agent in the 1980s, who warned us about foreign, um, well, then Soviet slash Russian efforts to subvert Western society using a variety of information warfare tactics, even back then, and propaganda and infiltration. And that's what Kennedy was talking about right here. Subversion and conspiracy. He refers to it. This is 1952. So before he became president. He says, all problems are dwarfed by the necessity of the West to maintain against the communists a balance of power. All problems are dwarfed by the necessity of the West to maintain against the communists a balance of power. So, He also pointed out that containment was necessary not only for the United States military safety, but also because of the threat of communism posed in political and economic spheres. This really does, this is very insightful, I think. It, he can see all the way down the road to what we're dealing with here today. But he's talking about a balance. He's not talking about destroying the Soviet Union or overthrowing anything. He's talking about a, maintaining, maintaining a balance. And if you then fast forward to his presidency, you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, he took a stand against communism. And in many respects, he was one of the most effective presidents against communism in the modern era, I would say. You had Cuba, that whole, you know, the Bay of Pigs. And while some people say that put him at odds with the CIA, and I suppose you could argue that, I would say overall that, um, you know, he was a, a strong adversary, an opponent of the Soviet Union, even though in some ways with Khrushchev, he became um, aligned at least on a path toward peace to the degree that they were trying to avoid mutually assured destruction. But that paved the way with his assassination to Lyndon Johnson taking office and Vietnam and everything that came with that. And you look back and even, you know, the election where Kennedy defeated Nixon. And what happened there? Oh, the election was disputed. People wondered then, and they said there were accusations of the election being stolen. Oh, my goodness. Where have we heard that most recently? Goes on and on, doesn't it? As a kid, I kind of remember simpler times, but maybe not so much. Maybe it's just an ongoing saga 
it feels like reality TV, just political style. So there was all of that. And then you get into the Nixon era, right? But before we do that, I want to go, I want to rewind to when, when Kennedy was president, this was a, Well, here is Kennedy with a clip of him speaking about the communist threat. Okay. And I don't know if things have changed all that much. <laughs> For all, really, it just seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. So what year was this? This was 1960. And here we go. Senator Kennedy, on another subject, communism is so often described as an ideology or a belief that exists somewhere other than in the United States. Let me ask you, sir, just how serious a threat to our national security are these communist subversive activities in the United States today? Well, I think they're serious. I think it's a matter that we should continue to uh, give uh, great care and attention to. We should support uh, the laws which the United States has passed in order to protect us from uh, those who would destroy us from within. We should sustain uh, the Department of Justice in its efforts and the FBI, and we should be continually alert. I think if the United States is maintaining a strong society here in the United States, I think that we can meet any internal threat. The major threat is external and will continue. So he's acknowledging that there is an internal threat because of communism. Now, this is after the McCarthy era, right? So McCarthyism, but still acknowledging that there's an ongoing internal threat, which would suggest infiltration, which is what I've been talking about here. That's what CSIS in Canada has been talking about. Um, security and uh, intelligence officials in the United States have been talking about. I've shown you even independent uh, security firms, international consultants who have been, who advise national security agencies. I've shown you some documentation in recent weeks where they have acknowledged that there is an ongoing information warfare and propaganda effort ongoing through infiltration and political influence brokering. And we're even seeing now, you know, it's not just from Russia, it's from China as well. Today, we're seeing a lawsuit from some sort of Chinese organization in Canada going to be suing the federal government and or CSIS, I believe, because of accusations of them operating Chinese police stations on Canadian soil. So that's unfolding. This goes all the way back. They were talking about this in the 50s and back in the 60s. Kennedy, viewed by some almost as a, well, almost as a left, it's a very far left wing candidate at the time, I would say, progressive to be sure. Even he was concerned about it um, because it's a real thing. And so, you have to remember that this was the Cold War. There's no question that the former Soviet Union was absolutely an adversary of the United States. 
people were very worried. He had Sputnik and the space race and the arms race, both sides building up nuclear weapons. And yeah, I'm telling you that, yeah, some Nazis came to the United States and to Canada, but they went to Russia too. The Russians took a bunch of Nazis in. Both sides took in Nazis because they wanted to, after the war, bring the 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 brain power that was left over from Nazi Germany in so that they could milk that for whatever technology it was worth. Both sides were doing it. But that does not a Nazi nation make. I'm sorry, I'm not going to subscribe to that idea that Canada is a Nazi nation today or that the United States is the um, the ongoing incarnation of the former Nazi Germany. It's just not true. Quite the contrary, I would say. Some elements of fascistic economics, to be sure. But no, no. The, uh, the assertion that the United States has adopted or has been taken over by, no wasn't the case then it isn't the case now what is the case is that you have a multicultural multi-ethnic multi-ideological society and it is in a constant state of stress because that's what democracy is all about it is diverse that's why I keep saying diversity is not our strength. It is our challenge. Let me take a quick break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to queue up another clip here in our discussion on this subject. <laughs> Exile The Knights of Malta Maverick News Join us. The world is watching. Greetings brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out. Of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. individuals. Defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow, maybe too late, too late, too late, too late. Maverick News. The world is watching.
So as President Kennedy went to Berlin, where they had the Berlin Wall. Because we were dealing with the Cold War, and it was the Soviet Union that had that wall erected. Communists. Germany divided in two, split up after World War II. Yeah, the Soviet Union, a lot more Russians died in World War II than Americans, but the United States, they fought fascism too, and so too did Canada. And my view on this is that the United States and Canada are complex countries. Very diverse and devoted to, focused on, always have been since the since the their creation, really on freedom. And as imperfect as our countries have been, always working towards something more perfect, because we are imperfect, and getting better over time. And in '63, Kennedy went to Berlin and gave this inspirational speech. This is long before Ronald Reagan called for the wall to be torn down, but the message here was one of hope and freedom in the face of communism. This is how I remember it. This is the speech. I am proud to come to this city as the guest of your distinguished mayor, who has symbolized throughout the world the fighting spirit of West Berlin. And I am proud and I am proud to visit the Federal Republic with your distinguished chancellor who for so many years has committed Germany to democracy and freedom and progress and to come here in the company of my fellow American, General Clay, who, who has been in this city during its great moment of crisis and will come again if ever needed. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the proudest post was Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. I, uh, I, I appreciate, I appreciate my interpreter translating my German. There are many people in the world 
who really don't understand or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lost the not Berlin in common. Let them has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. I want to say on behalf of my countrymen, who live many miles away on the other side of the Atlantic, who are far distant from you, that they take the greatest pride, that they have been able to share with you, even from a distance, the story of the last 18 years. I know of no town, no city that has been besieged for 18 years that still lives with the vitality and the force and the hope and the determination of the city of West Berlin. That was Kennedy. And of course, he's then assassinated about, what, a year later? Just over a year later. Then you get Lyndon Johnson. And you get the Vietnam War. And you get Kissinger in there later with Nixon. And the Vietnam War continues. And that's just one of many conflicts that Kissinger weighs in on. As Secretary of State, he um, after Nixon resigns, Kissinger's always there um, advising presidents and administrations through his consulting firm. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize at one point, very controversial. But take a look at what went on during the Vietnam conflict. Was he just a Jewish German-born Nazi who 
was part of a fascistic Nazi government in the United States? No, I don't think so. Not quite that simple. Did he just want to bomb people in Cambodia because he was a racist? No, I don't think so. I think it's more complex than that. Um, I remember it being far more complex than that. Did he make mistakes? Yep. Um, was he too, was he a warmonger? You could argue that. Would I have done it the way he did it? Nope. Are any of these figures in history black and white? Simplistic? No, they're complex. They're human beings. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a dictator or a president of a country. None of these players are the caricatures that are painted in the media and in the pages of history. They are much more complex than that because the issues that they deal with, that they had to deal with during their time were complex and they helped to influence the course of events through history. Kissinger being one of the main architects of where we've wound up today. He planted the seeds of war by engaging in war. And I think that we've, we have a lot to learn from his mistakes, from his carelessness, from, and yes, just also from some of his successes toward ending the conflict in Vietnam over time. Did it drag on too long because of his actions? Perhaps. Did people die because of him and his actions? Yes. Were they justified? I'll leave that up to you. So what about Nixon? Let's start with him. This is Nixon on communism and Khrushchev. And of course, Kissinger served um, on Nixon's administration. And there's even, you know, there you can analyze what went on even during the campaign during that time where Kissinger was advising another president. But anyway, here we go. Here's Nixon. Mr. Nixon, what is the truth about our ability to fight the growing menace of communism? Well, first, we must recognize communism for what it is. Mr. Khrushchev understands only strength and firmness. To apologize to him just means weakness. Our next president must show clearly that America won't stand for being pushed around anywhere in the world. When Mr. Khrushchev says our grandchildren will live under communism, we must answer his grandchildren will live in freedom. When he says the Monroe Doctrine is dead, we say the doctrine of freedom applies everywhere in the world. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for freedom, freedom from hunger, from disease, and a victory for the ageless hope of people everywhere, freedom from tyranny. Number eight. 
Nixon and Lodge. Um, it was a different time, man. It was the Cold War. Both sides engaged in an arms race, which has been rekindled, I think, <laughs> in the last couple of years. I was alive. I remember as a little kid, people were petrified. People talked about the Cold War in very stark terms. And you had then you had Vietnam, and what a mistake that was all the way around. I mean, it was it just ended up being a humanitarian disaster, a blunder, lies. But you don't think all governments lie to their people? Of course, all governments lie. The ends justify the means, right? Especially in war. Tonight, we showed you videos of people posing with babies for propaganda pictures. We've shown you fake videos. We showed you during the episode with uh, Yaroslav Hunka the fake postage stamp that was fabricated and the uh, the information about that that was thrown out on the internet by i would say pro-russian activists whoever trying to suggest that ukraine had been elevating this canadian nazi to hero status for all this time and it was just so it's just all fake and then tonight we showed you the uh the fake story with Danny Trejo, the actor. <laughs> you know, just a fake story. It's going on. And both sides are engaging in this kind of stuff. I don't know what the CIA might be doing over in Russia. like, But I'm sure they're up to something, as every government is all the way around the world. Have to be realistic about these things. And I guess when it comes to politics, I'm a political realist. And the reality was that in the 1960s, people were afraid. I think the politicians were afraid and they were grappling with this and they were responding to public demands for at least a feeling of safety. And, you know, it's. Um, the legacy of Kissinger still ripples through history. It, um, it ties in very, very much so to what happened in Cambodia, where he is accused of war crimes, where he, you know, apparently was instrumental in the approval of the bombing, the secret bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War. But why did it happen? All the memes that I'm seeing online, all the anti-Kissinger, anti-American rhetoric that I'm seeing, especially on X or Twitter, they don't get into the details. They just talk about Kissinger carpet bombing Cambodia. Why did it happen? It's because during the Vietnam War, the government of Cambodia, the United States kept trying to garner favor with Cambodia. 
but the country was trying to remain neutral. But then the government there was upset and the leadership ended up allowing Vietnam to put bases in there and establish supply routes through Cambodia to uh, to the other to another entry point into Vietnam. The Americans became aware of it. They weren't sure how to deal with it, so they didn't send troops directly in. Instead, they decided to bomb that area and try to take out those supply routes. It wasn't very successful because, as I recall, they would bomb the supply lines and then the people who were involved in running the munitions, the uh, the arms, the food, all the different supplies that the troops in the fighting forces in Vietnam needed, they, they would bomb and then they just reestablished right away, uh, take up other routes. I have for you a little bit of a history lesson here. Why did... America fight the Vietnam War. And it's not as simplistic as people today might think. It, uh, you know, the United States didn't go all in. It was very controversial. It was like, why didn't they just go in and and, and just commit all the, all the power, firepower they needed to just end this thing? And it's because there was a complex geopolitical reality even back then because China was in play and they and the United States didn't want China to get directly involved in the conflict. So they never would send troops directly into North Vietnam. It was always a reserved approach to the war. It was disastrous. As a result, it just dragged on and on and on and on for years resulting in more and more and more death. And it was fought in the South, never really up in the North, in North Vietnam. Let me bring this PragerU video up and it'll help explain kind of what happened back then at a time when you still had, you know, the, the, the Red Scare. People were afraid of communism. Of course they were, because there was actually a real threat. It was the height of the Cold War and both sides were threatened with nuclear annihilation. And Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, did believe in the domino theory, that if left unchecked, communism would spread around the world. So the idea back then was to oppose communism overseas before it made its way to North America or to the United States, where already Kennedy has acknowledged that they, they'd been seeing an internal communistic threat infiltration through government. And I submit to you that it is very apparent and documented even in Canada today. You think Justin Trudeau is a fascist? No, he's not. There's every indication and there's every, uh, he's an admirer of the basic Chinese dictatorship. Here's Prager, you and Victor Davis Hanson. The Vietnam War lasted 10 years, cost America 58,000 lives, and over a trillion dollars adjusted for inflation. It brought down a president, stirred social unrest, and ended in defeat. 
No one in hindsight believes fighting a losing war is ever worth the cost. Consequently, the Vietnam War is usually written off as a colossal strategic blunder and a humanitarian disaster. Yet historical appraisals might have been much different had the Vietnam War followed the pattern of the Korean War, which the United States fought for almost identical reasons, the defense of freedom in Asia. The U.S. had military advisors in Vietnam during the 1950s, but didn't become involved in a major way until 1963. President John F. Kennedy firmly believed in the domino effect, the foreign policy theory that vulnerable nations without help would fall one after another, like dominoes, to external communist aggression. Kennedy thus hoped to stop Soviet and Chinese-backed communist invasions in the manner President Harry Truman had in Korea by taking a stand in Vietnam. As with Korea, was a war the United States did not seek. As with Korea, Vietnam presented no imperial advantages, no natural resources, or resources of any kind that United States needed to protect or wished to obtain. As with Korea, the aggressor was a communist government in the North intent on taking control of the South, and its military crossed an internationally recognized border to do so. Following Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963, President Lyndon Johnson vastly escalated America's role in 1964. But even as he did so, Johnson prosecuted the war with deep ambivalence, authorizing significantly more troops and money for the war, but never pushing for total victory. In contrast, the North Vietnamese never wavered. They ignored every one of Johnson's many offers to negotiate a settlement. By 1971, the war was at a stalemate, neither side able to establish a clear advantage. The president, Richard Nixon, pursued a two-pronged strategy to turn over combat operations to the South Vietnamese and to bomb North Vietnam. The effort brought the communists to the Paris peace talks, and by 1973, the North agreed to a general settlement, establishing two autonomous Vietnamese nations, one communist, one non-communist, in the manner of North and South Korea. However, the Watergate scandal, the subsequent resignation of President Nixon, and the Democrats' sweeping congressional victory in the 1974 midterm election all helped to convince the North Vietnamese that America would not enforce the peace agreement. They were right. Without U.S. air support and material aid, the South Vietnamese had no chance against the North. While supplied by the Soviet Union and the Chinese, the communists gained full control over the country in April 1975. The war proved far more costly than Korea because the geography and landscapes of Vietnam were far more conducive to insurgency operations. There were also far more restrictions placed on American commanders than during the Korean War. And the United States in the 1960s was a far less conservative and cohesive country than America of the 1950s. Yet despite the long ordeal and terrible cost, South Vietnam was saved in 1973 only to be lost in 1975. The U.S. defeat in Vietnam was a political choice, not a military necessity. Had the U.S. protected an independent but vulnerable South Vietnam in 1973 and 4, that country would have most likely followed the model of South Korea. Millions of Southeast Asians would not have become boat people and refugees or have been sent to the gulags and re-education camps. A viable U.S.-backed democratic Vietnam would have stabilized the region and almost certainly prevented the neighboring Cambodian genocide in which one-fifth of that country, two million people, were slaughtered by its communist leadership. And much of the bitterness over the war on both sides of the American political spectrum, still with us today, would have vanished. And for the communist Vietnamese, the instigators and aggressors of the terrible conflict, 
What was it all for? Today, ironically, the Vietnamese government aspires to nothing more than the capitalist affluence that it once reviled. I'm Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution for Prager University. So that's a Prager U University, Prager U video, Victor Davis Hansen. And that kind of explains why the U.S. was involved in a war that ultimately they just could not win. Not so much because they didn't have the military might to do it, but politically, it just wasn't going to happen. The um, result of that ultimately was the uh, the emergence of, well, in Cambodia, you got the, the Khmer Rouge, you got a communist government after all of the bombing. And, you know, I think in a, in a strange way, Maybe in a, and it was the unintended consequence of government action, military action in Cambodia. You could blame Kissinger for the emergence of the communists and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia because it was the reaction to the action. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. They bomb Cambodia. People there look for a solution. They see the United States as evil and they embrace communism they get the Khmer Rouge here's a Ted Ed video to help explain what happened there and the atrocities that were committed by the communists in the wake of the US efforts to cut off all those supply lines and the bombing raids that took place, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Huge mistake. Again, not something that I would ever advocate for, but those were the circumstances. Those were the realities of what happened at that time. This is, I'm just telling you what happened. And here's the result afterward. The killing fields. From 1975 to 1979, the Communist Party of Kampuchea ruled Cambodia with an iron fist, perpetrating genocide that killed one-fourth of the country's population. Roughly one million Cambodians were executed as suspected political enemies or due to their ethnicities. The regime targeted Muslim Cham, Vietnamese, Chinese, Thai, and Laotian individuals. Outside these executions, one million more Cambodians died of starvation, disease, or exhaustion from overwork. This genocidal regime rose to power amidst decades of political turmoil. Following World War II, Cambodia's monarch, Prince Norodom Sihanouk, successfully negotiated the country's independence after roughly 90 years of French colonial rule. But Sihanouk's strict policies provoked friction with many citizens, especially militant communist rebels, who had long opposed the French and now turned their attention to overthrowing the prince. 
This unstable situation was further complicated by a war raging outside Cambodia's borders. In Vietnam, millions of American troops were supporting the non-communist South against the communist North. While the U.S. petitioned for Cambodia's support, Prince Sihanouk tried to stay neutral. But in 1970, he was overthrown by his prime minister who allowed American troops to bomb regions of Cambodia in their efforts to target North Vietnamese fighters. These attacks killed thousands of Cambodian civilians. To regain power after being overthrown, the prince allied with his political enemies. The Communist Party of Kampuchea, also known as the Khmer Rouge, was led by Cambodians who dreamed of making their nation a classless society of rice farmers. They opposed capitalist Western imperialism and sought to lead the country to self-sufficiency. But to the public, they mostly represented a force fighting the pro-American government. Angered by destructive American bombing and encouraged by the prince's call to arms, many Cambodians joined the Khmer Rouge. Eventually, a full-blown civil war erupted. Over five years of fighting, more than half a million Cambodians died in this brutal conflict. But the violence didn't end when the rebels conquered Phnom Penh in April 1975. Upon taking the capital, the Khmer Rouge executed anyone associated with the previous government. Prince Sihanouk remained stripped of power and was put under house arrest. And the Khmer Rouge began evacuating city residents to the countryside. Those who couldn't make the trip by foot were abandoned separating countless families. In this new regime, every citizen was stripped of their belongings and given the same clothes and haircuts. Private property, money, and religion were outlawed. The new agricultural workforce was expected to produce impossible amounts of rice, and local leaders would be killed if they couldn't fulfill quotas. Many prioritized their orders to the capital above feeding workers. Underfed, overworked, and suffering from malaria and malnutrition, thousands perished. The Khmer Rouge members enforcing this system were no safer. When their plan failed to produce rice at the expected rates, Khmer Rouge leadership became paranoid. They believed that internal enemies were trying to sabotage the revolution, and they began arresting and executing anyone perceived as a threat. This brutality continued for almost four years. Finally, in 1979, Vietnamese troops working alongside defected Khmer Rouge members took control of the country. This political upheaval triggered yet another civil war that wouldn't end until the 1990s. In the years that followed, there was no easy path to justice for victims and their families. A hybrid UN-Cambodian tribunal was established in 2003, but it only tried Khmer Rouge in the topmost leadership positions. Lower-level Khmer Rouge members appeared in court as well, but they weren't placed on trial. Instead, they gave testimony and offered insight into the cruel system that had enabled their superiors' crimes. Some of these perpetrators were even legally acknowledged as victims because they constantly feared for their lives and committed violence as a means of self-preservation. This perception of low-level Khmer Rouge members as victims rather than perpetrators extended beyond the courtroom. Like other Cambodians, most Khmer Rouge members lost family, suffered hunger, were stripped of their homes and belongings, and were overworked to exhaustion. And the paranoia amongst Khmer Rouge leadership had led to a higher rate of execution for Khmer Rouge members than the ethnic majority population. 
As a result, many Cambodians today don't just see the genocide as one committed against ethnic minority groups, but also as a broad campaign of violence impacting the entire population. As of 2021, only three people have received prison sentences. Many victims would like the tribunal to pursue further trials of Khmer Rouge leaders. However, a 2018 national survey revealed that most victims feel the tribunal has contributed to justice. In the wake of such tragedy, it's tempting to paint conflicts in simplistic terms, casting one group as oppressor and the other as oppressed. But many Cambodians live with a more complex reality. Everyone suffered, even those who contributed to the suffering of others. This perception doesn't excuse any acts of violence, but how a society remembers traumatic events plays a part in who is seen as victim, who is seen as perpetrator, and how a shattered society can build a path into the future. Bearing witness to our ugly history. It's not black and white. Communism, fascism, two forms of socialism do not represent a path to freedom. Simplistic solutions, oppressed versus the oppressor, do not represent a path to freedom. They are the opposite of freedom. Coercion is baked into the ideology and the system. You must comply. You as an individual have no rights because you must do what is in the best interests of the collective. And if you do not conform you will be punished. It is the only way to ensure the survival of the communistic government and the system. You can't have any dissenters. And that is what unfolded in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. Massive killings, mass deaths. Anyone who opposed the regime executed. That's what happened under Stalin. That's what happens in communism. That's honestly also what happens to some degree under fascism, just in a different way. They tend to scapegoat, but both sides do that. But they're not really both two sides. They're both on the same side of the coin. The opposite side is actual true freedom. And where have I heard, you know, let's get rid of money lately? Through an infestation, a cancer that has been growing like a, a tumor within the freedom movement. I've heard people saying things like, oh, in fact, there was one guy who was presenting himself as a freedom fighter saying that he was going to abolish money as soon as he came to power. And he was encouraging people to follow him and send him money. <laughs> because the infiltration is present even today, the influence, because that's what democracy is. Democracy, a free society, is vulnerable because we're free. 
So we allow people to express their views and their opinions and even try to promote their ideologies, even their communist ideologies, or even their fascistic ideologies within our society. It doesn't mean they're right. They have to be challenged if they're bad ideas. But in a free society, people are free to express those views. Not so much in other countries where freedom of speech is not embraced. So freedom of speech, freedom of expression, these are some of the strong points in a free and democratic society, but they're also the Achilles heel of Western democratic societies of Canada, of the United States. And as a result, we've seen infiltration of our governments, our institutions, and especially over the last few years, there's every indication that what we have been experiencing is the coercive aspects of a far left, or I would say, I don't even like to use the left-right dichotomy. It, it's, it's very clear that these are the coercive aspects of social, socialistic, communistic, fascistic ideologies, all of which are, are related. Cousins, sisters, <laughs> brothers. They're incestuous, really, because they're really screwing each other all the time, just wrestling for power. That's why it appears one's on one side, one's on the other side. No, they're really very, very similar, almost identical in many respects. They just wrestle for power all the time. Money. Money is just a means of exchange. It's not the root of... I mean, the quest for, I guess, power and wealth. I guess you could say that's the root of all evil. The money itself is, necess is a necessity. That's why communist governments like China is more capitalistic and free market today than we are over here. Marxist groups here in Canada have been very critical of Russia. They are critical of Russia today because they see Russia as being too capitalistic. And indeed, capitalism is at the core of creating the new currency that will form the foundation for the BRICS economy. They're going to have their own currency. And they've embraced free markets to, to a large degree and capitalism as a way to bring prosperity to their people and their countries as well, because it's a proven system. So all these countries are hybrids, but this is what was going on back in the 60s and 70s under Kissinger. And it was not that simplistic. And a lot of lessons were being learned the hard way back in those days. And a lot of what played out then is still playing out today. Because as I pointed out last night, this conflict between Israel and Hamas, it isn't really about just that strip of land. This is an extension of this geopolitical 
struggle between superpowers, between ideologies, a struggle between religions and secular societies, diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic societies here in the West. And what is allowing the galvanization and the alliance between some of these, these Muslim countries like Iran and Russia and Palestine is a distaste and actually a hatred for capitalism. That's one of the galvanizing features. Even though in many respects, they don't seem to blend, that's what it is. And so they've aligned against Israel the United States, which represent, to them, capitalism. The little Satan and the big Satan, the United States. And that's what's unfolding globally. Now, you can pick either side. Maybe you're, you don't like capitalism either. But you know what? That's also why you're seeing out in the streets right now the same people who are out there protesting with BLM And all these other protests over time, George Floyd, the people opposed to the freedom movement, the people out there protesting in favor of drag queen story time, the people out there, those are all the same people. It's the same ones. And it's a little bit strange and it's neurotic to me to, to witness what's going on in our society. It's very strange to see people kind of now suddenly aligning with these people over here, but that also should tell you why political alliances, strategic alliances, even between countries and different groups, it shifts over time. And so now suddenly we have people who have been diametrically opposed to what they would describe as far left wokeism out there marching in the streets right now, in many cases, with the very people that they were opposed to diametrically, ideologically before, because now they're protesting against Israel or they're protesting for Palestine. But on the Ukraine side, they're up. It just, it's neurotic. But if you start to look at it through the lens that I've just presented to you, you can start to understand why these partners, these relationships have formed politically. And Kissinger, yeah, he, uh, he was at the heart of you know, so much of this over time. A hundred years old, he passed away a major figure internationally for a long time. Big mistakes made, stupidity in many respects. You bomb over here, you get a reaction over there, you think you're going to win a war. I don't know. It just seems to me that these wars, you nobody ever really wins. You just end up with losers. You just end up with long-term consequences down the road. It's very difficult to win a war kinetically. Because you're not winning hearts and minds. You're just trying to bomb somebody into submission. I don't think it works. And it's unfortunate, but human beings do what they think they have to do at the time, depending on the threat that is presented to them, right? 
and Nixon, he saw, even he saw what was coming. And this is why it was also complex, because even though China was a major player geopolitically at the time and was emerging. You know, you have to remember that it was the United States, it was the West that actually helped China emerge as an economic superpower because we've outsourced all of our production to China. Yeah, so you can argue that we were trying to exploit their cheap labor, but the communist government of China embraced that. And they said, sure, give us all your production. We'll produce it all here using our labor. And then over time, they've built the country up. And Nixon at the time was in favor of that. You may not remember because you maybe weren't alive at the time, but Nixon went to China. Nixon normalized relations with China, while at the same time being at war with communist Vietnam. And some people are upset with Nixon and with Kissinger because they really created a pathway to prosperity and the emergence of China as a global superpower, which now rivals the United States. Kind of weird, isn't it? Not black and white. It's gray. And I don't really have a problem with China. I don't like communism. I don't like the authoritarian nature of it. I don't like the coercive aspects that are baked into it, where you they must have compliance from the masses. I'm about freedom. I'm about individual rights. We need to be careful where all of that takes us. But here we are, 2023. And when I look back, Nixon kind of foretold he could see what was coming. He was sort of nicked back in the 1990s. This is long after he left office. What was going to happen today with Russia? if certain things happened. And uh, this is very insightful. Now, I'm not bringing up all the Watergate stuff. I'm just letting him speak as someone who had a lot of knowledge as a former president. Here he is. From developing nuclear weapons. Mr. President, the, uh, the world has been virtually turned upside down in the two and a half years since the Berlin Wall came down. A new dynamic is a word emerging, and also emerging uh, is a, a new Russia as a great superpower. Yet this Russia is having trouble getting its feet on the ground, so to speak, and, and turning its uh, directions into a capitalist economy, a free market economy. Uh, you have made recommendations not only in your book, but in your speeches and at your recent conference about what the United States should do to help Russia, and you've also pointed out what the consequences of not helping Russia will be. Would you share with us your thoughts? Well, Russia at the present time is at a crossroads. Uh, it is often said that the, the Cold War is over and that the West has won it. That's only half true, uh, because what has happened is that the communists have been defeated, uh, but the ideas of freedom now are on trial. If they don't work, there, there will be a reversion to not communism, which has failed, but what I call a new despotism, which would pose a mortal danger uh, to the rest of the world, because it would have be infected with the virus of Russian imperialism, which of course has been a characteristic of Russian foreign policy for centuries. We begin with that. Therefore, the West has, the United States has, all those who want peace and freedom in the world, a great stake in freedom succeeding in Russia. 
If it succeeds, it will be an example for others to follow. It will be an example for China, for example, to follow, uh, for the other communist states, the few that remain. If it fails, it means that the hardliners in China will get a new life. They will say it failed there. There's no reason for us to turn to democracy. That's part of what is at stake here. Uh, the other point that we have to have in mind is that it's vitally important that it succeed because it means that Russia, which for 70 years has been exporting or trying to export the ideas of communism to the world, will now be exporting the ideas of freedom, the ideas of democracy, the goods of freedom. It means that Russia, for example, will be able to export goods. That'll be a huge export market, for example, for the United States and other countries. So I would simply sum it up to say for our Korean audience, it means a great deal to Korea too, because Russia, the Soviet Union, I should say, was a very strong supporter of North Vietnam. Russia will not be a supporter of North Vietnam. And that means that, that we have here a potential ally joining with the United States and other, country, other free countries in putting pressure on North Korea not to go forward with a nuclear option. And, you know, <laughs> over time, these things, they seem to sort of work themselves out, you know. What do I mean by that? So the United States lost the war in Vietnam. And yet today, <laughs> what do we have? We have... Vietnam really engaged as a trading partner with the United States um, in, a, in a very robust way. And it makes me wonder, what was the point of the whole damn thing? Because these, even these communist governments, over time, out of necessity, they embrace free market capitalism to one degree or another because they need to find a way to feed their people over time. So right now you can buy an electric car made in Vietnam from this company, VinFast. They're importing these into Canada and they manufacture all kinds of different goods in Vietnam today, which are shipped over here. So the country that costs so many, you know, the, the conflict with the country that costs so many lives, now today we're just trading partners again. And uh, thank God for that. Thank God for that. Was all the bloodshed really necessary? Did Kissinger make the right decisions at the time? He won a Nobel Peace Prize. He found They finally found a way to end the war in Vietnam. The United States losing. But what did we learn from it? Did we learn very much? I don't know if we've learned anything. Because the United States, I think, blew 
NATO countries have blown an opportunity to form alliance, an alliance with Russia in you know, the, the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the dissolution of the former Soviet Union. I think these countries like China and Russia, they're more free market than ever before. They have, they've embraced a lot of these ideas that come from the West. Still authoritarian in many respects. And certainly, you know, we don't want, I don't think we want to embrace any kind of um, authoritarian regime here. I don't want communism here. Some people do. You think that's a path to freedom? I just showed you one of many examples from history. What happens under communism? You believe that's a path to freedom? And I'm worried about it, honestly, because I'm seeing so much deception out there, even among freedom groups, where I see some genuine efforts being made to work toward less government, more freedom within that movement. But then I see other groups misrepresenting themselves and spin-off organizations. There's one right now, and I won't name them. I may talk about it more another night, but they're actually asking some people to sign a document which is not even fully presented to people easily on their website, but they're presenting it to people. Sign this. This is a solution to our government tyranny. Sign this document. And what it really is doing is it's encouraging people to sign away their rights. Because as I'm looking at everything from this organization, which has just recently changed its name, I was very leery of them to begin with. In my estimation, they're basically communists. And what they're doing is they're, it's not a petition. It's, it's a contract. Well, they're telling you that our government you, is, is trying to get you to, how they, they've tricked you into complying with contractual law. Then they turn around and give you exactly that. They want you to sign this contract. And when they get enough signatures on mass, they assert that they will have the authority then to represent the Canadian people and essentially form a new government. It is bizarre. And I can't believe that people are falling for it. Why would you sign something that essentially results in you giving up your rights as an individual? to let them represent you as part of a collective to bring in an extreme far-left socialist communist government. And that's exactly what it is. But that is what is going on. It is subversive. You don't think that it's a real threat? Here's another group. <laughs> this is... Airship Fortress. They're telling people, don't worry, we're here to implement natural law. And don't worry because I know they, they say that China and right here, 
one paragraph one two three four paragraph four one two three paragraph four canadian anxiety over being captured and controlled by russia and china is understandable especially given the rhetoric coming from your neighbors in washington dc however i'd like to shed a different light on the situation on February 6, 2023, the Court of Ages issued an order for Russia and China to assist the United States in a peaceful transition to natural law, which would inevitably lead to a peaceful transition across the world. Russia and China are here in North America to assist, not to take over. And as wacky as that sounds, and as wacky as that organization and um, <laughs> arm of whatever political movement you want to call that may sound, we're seeing that there is Chinese infiltration, that there are Chinese police stations here, that there is Russian influence, that there is Chinese Communist Party money coming into Canada to influence our politics, that our politicians are even being threatened and coerced by external political forces from those countries. <laughs> but it's okay. They're, they're here just to help. They're not here to take over. And what are we seeing right now? You know, before World War I, we didn't even have an income tax. You know, we built this country up and Western society up into the most powerful economy in the world, providing the highest standard of living in human history. Free markets and capitalism, but not corporatism, not economic fascism, not what Trudeau and Biden have been implementing, not massive money printing on an unprecedented scale and then handing billions and billions and billions and even trillions of dollars to corporate interests in order to control them. That is not the free market. That's corporate that's corporatism, corporatocracy. That's economic fascism. That's an exploitation and an abuse of capitalism and free markets. It's not about free markets at all anymore. That's not what we have. That's what the problem is. The gov these governments have been infiltrated by these players who are implementing a socialist economic agenda. Transferring the, your wealth through massive money printing to corporations, which in and of themselves are not evil, but it becomes very evil when it becomes a public-private partnership with the government and the corporations getting into bed with each other. Because then the power is lost. The people lose the power. You see, a corporation is just a group of people 
shareholders. Corporation is just made up of people who buy stocks and own the company collectively and cooperate as part of a corporation, the body, the corp, a body of people who own a big company and get economies of scale and more efficiencies by cooperating to operate a big company, which has propelled wealth and a higher standard of living for everyone here in our society. Because you get greater efficiencies that way. But when the government then exploits that by taking the money of the people and funneling it back through themselves to then inject into those big companies in order to control them with conditions to tell them what they are allowed to produce and how much of it they're allowed to produce, then it becomes authoritarian and coercive and you as an individual lose all your rights. And that's what has been going on. And that is why during the pandemic, through this socialized healthcare system that we've had, they've been able to take your rights away. One healthcare system for everyone. You must comply. If you do not get the thing in the arm, you don't get a heart transplant. And because it's all government controlled and you demanded free health care, you have no other option. There's no other place for you to go. You must comply or you don't get health care. Talk about social credit scores. It's already in place, folks. And then I see people being sold a bill of goods by organizations, even people within the freedom movement, not all of the people within the freedom movement, there's just certain elements within it who are selling you essentially far left socialism and outright communism being branded as something else. They're not coming out and telling you, just like the guy I told you about at the beginning of this broadcast who misrepresented himself at that May Day celebration communist, but not telling the young people that he was a communist. People within the freedom movement who are communists who are not really telling you that they're communists. And there are people from other political stripes in there too. No doubt about that. But this is getting real traction to the point where I'm also asserting here tonight that you are seeing manipulation, infiltration, persuasion from outside political forces and outside political groups trying to push. They see this as an opportunity, a period of instability politically within our countries, a, 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 an effort to take over, <laughs> okay, to, to, to begin the revolution or to continue the revolution that has already begun. Last night, I showed you Peter Schiff, the economist saying that because of all the money printed, because of the massive debt, which is undermining the stability of our country, of our economy here, and because of the massive international debt that we're racking up, he sees a revolution coming as well, simply because of that, because it makes it inevitable. But that's, not that's only because the economy has been mismanaged. 
and turned into something that doesn't isn't really the free market. It's a form of capitalism, but not true capitalism. And you are free to disagree because we are in a free country. But as a result of all that, I'm this I'm seeing an increase in anti-Semitism and scapegoating and and yes, you know, fear of Muslims, Islamophobia, prejudice, more polarization, extremism politically on all sides. And again, it tells me what have we learned? Not very much. Which brings me to where can we find guidance? Well, you know, the answers are really there in history. As long as you're looking in the right place. Uh, it makes me think of Martin Luther King. And so with that, I bring up this speech. In which I'm sure you will find some inspiration and positivity, which is seriously lacking. Here we go. Let me bring up Martin Luther King Jr. And maybe if Henry Kissinger had embraced more of these ideas, he would be remembered differently today. Was he a war criminal? Was he worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize? I'll leave that for you to decide, folks. It was a different time. And he was a complex man. And I wouldn't have wanted, I wouldn't want to, I'm glad I wasn't in his shoes. But today we need to find a way forward. And I think these words still ring true. We must work through the courts, through legislation, through the ballot. This is what we've been talking about over these last few meetings, the necessity of registering and the necessity of voting. And this is one of the most significant steps that the Negro can take at this hour, going to the ballot box. But I would like to give you a warning signal. I've tried to talk in militant terms for the last few minutes. But in the midst of this militancy, let us always realize that we don't have to hate as we try to straighten this situation out. Let us always realize that we don't have to become bitter as we try to straighten this situation out. And oh, my friends, if that is any one thing that I would like for you to remember this evening, it is the fact that somebody must have some sense in this world. Somebody must have sense enough to meet 
hate with love. Somebody must have sense enough to meet physical force with soul force. If we will but try this way, we will be able to change these conditions and yet at the same time win the hearts and souls of those who have kept these conditions alive. And I know the temptation. I know the temptation which comes to all of us. We've been trampled over so long. I know the temptation that comes to all of us. We've seen the viciousness of lynching mob with our own eyes. We've seen police brutality in our own lives. We are still the last hired and the first five. So many doors are closed in our faces. And that is a temptation for us to end up with bitterness. And I understand these people who have ended up in despair. I understand why there are some who have been a little misguided and they've ended up feeling that the problem can't be solved within. And so they talk about racial separation rather than racial integration. I understand their, their response. I have analyzed it psychologically and I understand it. But in spite of the fact that I understand it, I must say to them in patient terms that that isn't the way. I must say to them in patient terms that black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. And God is not interested merely. God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. But God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society where all men will live together as brothers. No, we need not hate. We need not use violence. That is another way. A way as old as the insights of Jesus of Nazareth. As modern as the techniques of Mohandas K. Gandhi. That is another way. Where's old as Jesus saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use them. And as modern as Gandhi saying, through Thoreau, non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That is another way. Where's old as Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. And when he said that, he realized that turning the other cheek might bring suffering sometimes. He realized that it may get you home bombed sometimes. He realized that it may get you stabbed sometimes. He realized that it may get you scarred up sometimes. But he was saying in substance that it is better to go through life with a scarred up body than a scarred up soul. That is another way. This is what we've got to see. No, that is a power in this way. And if we will follow this way, we will be the participants in a great building process that will make America a new nation. And we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. This is our challenge. This is the way we must grapple with this dilemma. And we will be a great people. And let us have faith in the future. I know it's dark sometimes. And I know all of us begin to ask, how long will we have to live with this system? I know all of us are asking, how long will prejudice blind divisions of men? 
darken their understanding and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? When will wounded justice, lying prostrate on the streets of our cities, be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? Yes, when will the radiant star of hope be plunged against the nocturnal bosom of this lonely night and plucked from weary souls the manacles of death and the chains of fear? How long will justice be crucified and truth bear it? How long? I can only answer this evening, not long. Henry Kissinger may have... Uh planted a lot of seeds that led to more war by engaging in war. But the foundations of freedom are still here. It's with us. And we should not let People who seek to deceive, mislead, destroy that dream and destroy what was built. We must not let the corruption that has resulted in decay and rot within the system allow it to destroy the system, to destroy us. been a long road a lot of bloodshed lest we forget we can still learn to live together now more than ever we need to because we're living with the results of generations of human error, fumbling, but also achievement. We have it, we've already got it. This grand experiment in freedom, it's not communism, it's not fascism, it's not Nazism, it's not those things. That's not what we are here. I won't sit back and just let people whitewash or paint all of us, our entire society with one brush. It just isn't true. Not those negative characterizations. We are still a force for good. We can be. Because you 
as an individual matter because your rights don't come from the government. They come from up there. And even if you don't believe, it doesn't matter. They still come from up there, from a higher power, bigger than any government. And you don't need a dictator to give you those rights. You don't, you do not need to sign something on somebody's website to give them the power to shift the power to them on behalf of you because you already have it from up there that's what the founding fathers knew that's what's in our constitutions and slowly over time we are reasserting those rights Limited, only insofar as our community, insofar as the people, us, allow them to be limited as a community. But our rights come from up there. Don't be signing stuff. Don't be signing your rights away to anybody who's making you promises of giving you your rights. You don't need to do that. Anybody who's telling you otherwise is not about freedom. Freedom. We still have some. We can have a whole lot more. We can get it back. We've been fighting for it for a long time. A lot of mistakes made. You can judge however you choose to judge the players through history, including Mr. Kissinger. But don't lose sight of the prize. Because we've already got it. We just need to hold on to it. Beware of those who seek to deceive. I will be back tomorrow night. Love all you guys. Thank you for spending the night here. I know you could be anyplace else. And uh, you've got other places you're going to go right now to listen to other messages and other opinions. And that's all cool because we are all about free speech right here on the Maverick News Channel. We'll be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a special broadcast, a review of the NCI final report on the pandemic with Sean Buckley. 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow night on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.